The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The concise Lincoln Library, published by Southern Illinois University Press, consists of almost two dozen brief monographs on topics related to Abraham Lincoln, written by experts with reference notes and bibliographies, and each under 200 pages. If you don't know where to start reading about Lincoln, but you're not a dummy, this is a series of Lincoln for Smarties books. Tonight we'll talk with Christian Semito, author of Lincoln and the 13th Amendment, in the Concise Lincoln Library, on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you this evening from the World Headquarters Annex of Civil War Talk Radio in the home office at Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not from the usual location in the Brewster Building on ECU's campus. And thus, I probably don't need to do the legal disclaimer. I'm not using their phone or their computer or anything. But nonetheless, I'll remind you I'm speaking only for myself and likewise my guest will do the same. I'm here home uh, because uh, my wife Emily is off in Berlin with a group of high school students uh, for 11 days or so, and that 
leaves me with the various chores, the dog walking, the hunting and gathering, the nightly meal that normally are shared with two people and it really causes one to appreciate how much easier it is to live with two and how what a challenge it can be living alone and, and increases my appreciation for those who do that. Well, living alone or with someone else, we spend much of our time in front of the television watching uh, college football, in particular the University of Michigan had another crazy ending this past week uh, and people are talking about that. And of course people will continue to be talking about that amazing goal line play this past weekend. Uh, by which I mean that moment on Sunday when in the Greenville FC match my shot went off the opposing keeper's outstretched hands as he dove. My teammate tapped in the rebound only to be ruled offside. How could that be? The ball was in front of both of us. He was behind me. It was a terrible call. It made all the difference between Greenville FC losing 5 to nothing, or it would have been 5 to 1 if that goal had counted. So we're still getting over that. Uh, but to make sure it doesn't happen again, I've recently started physical therapy, trying to get my knee in better shape for future matches. And since I'm doing tonight's show from home, uh, I may just start doing some stretches uh, during the program. If you hear odd sounds, please do not be concerned. Well, thanks as always to everybody who has contributed to Civil War Talk Radio in the last month or the last year or even any time in the last 12 years. Uh, I'm grateful. It helps support the show. It helps support the work that Mark Gaffney does with Impediments of War, the uh, Civil War companion website, and the Facebook page that he maintains. And more recently, uh, it also helps contribute to Heritage Hall, the history project here at East Carolina University. Your donations, your contributions to the show are still needed uh, I'm shilling harder than usual this year to try to get the number that we need for uh, uh, for the the Heritage Hall project to uh, conclude successfully. So uh, uh, my computer is acting funny here. I'm not using the usual work machine, but we'll get used to that. Anyway, uh, please consider donating. Uh, $30 would be a welcome amount, a portion of the 3000 Hope to contribute to this from Civil War Talk Radio listeners. Uh, you can do that by going to the PayPal button on the impedimentsofwar.org webpage. Click there, send your money. You don't have to have a PayPal account. Somehow it finds its way into uh, your offshore accounts, wherever they may be, and takes the money out. I don't know how they do that. But, but you can do that uh, any way you like. It's not tax deductible if you send it to me directly. That's just just uh, another quirk of the system. Well, enough of that. We have a lot of interesting stuff uh, tonight and in the weeks ahead. Uh, a week from now on Armistice Day, November 11th, Christopher Dickey, uh, son of the novelist James Dickey, will be with us to talk about a book that's not a novel, it's nonfiction. It's called Our Man in Charleston, Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South. Then on November 18th, Nick K. Adams joins us to discuss My Dear Wife and Children, Civil War Letters from a Second Minnesota Volunteer. There will not be a live show the following week on the 25th. It's Thanksgiving week. 
and we'll be off visiting uh, uh, Caroline, our older daughter, in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, but leaving uh, armed guards and Dobermans in the house uh, while we're away in case any criminal element is listening to the show right now. And on December 2nd, uh, Nancy Dane resumes the show. She's a author of children's books, but has done some interesting primary source research into the Civil War in Arkansas to support the books that she writes for young readers and very young readers. And finally, wrapping up the fall season, uh, December 9th, Brian James Egan, who is co-author of Michigan at Antietam, The Wolverine State's Sacrifice on America's Bloodiest Day. Uh, he also works at the Henry Ford Museum, so we'll talk a lot of interesting history things with him. I personally will be at speaking to the Raleigh uh, Civil War Roundtable, or uh, the Civil War Roundtable that meets in Raleigh. I've already forgotten if that's what their official name is. Uh, on November 9th, this coming Monday, so if you're in the North Carolina central area, please drop by, say hello. And to keep track of other news, always go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and find out what's happening. Well, tonight we're talking with Christian G. Samito, author of Lincoln and the 13th Amendment. Uh, Chris is a return guest last on the show in 2010. Uh, Chris, are you there? I am. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, last time you were here, we talked about uh, your your book on citizenship, Becoming American Under Fire, uh, Irish and African Americans. Uh, how, how did that book uh, go over uh, in the historical profession, as far as you know? Uh, as far as I know, it, uh, it, it went over very well. We had uh, great reviews that uh, came mm-hmm. out, a lot of good quotes, uh, both in the initial praise and then uh, as people reviewed it for different uh, historical journals. And uh, I have to say that was a particularly fun project on which to work. Uh, it was really exciting being able to look at two different and very important groups in the uh, Civil War and how they each didn't necessarily uh, interact, and yet their, their, their efforts uh, in separate spheres simultaneously motivated by war and, and informed by the wartime experience really helped to uh, redefine national citizenship in different ways. Uh, and that was a really exciting uh, thing for me to look at and be able to look at citizenship uh, and then these uh, two groups and the impact that they had. Uh, national citizenship is a concept and in practice uh, came out of the Civil War and early Reconstruction, uh, completely redefined. And uh, a lot of it had to do, uh, a lot of that process had to do with the African-American experience and, uh, and Irish-American experience. I mean, we think of the Fourteenth Amendment obviously as redefining citizenship. But uh, if you don't have black military participation, it's much less likely you would ever have a Fourteenth Amendment. So these things certainly uh, tie together very much. Let me right, ask you about right, the, and, to, uh, and actually to tie things into the the Thirteenth Amendment today, the Civil Rights mm-hmm. Act of eighteen sixty six, which uh, comes directly out of the Thirteenth Amendment and is. Uh, be constitutional because of the 13th Amendment, uh, and I think it's certainly rooted in the, the black Civil War military experience and uh, 
as well as the reaction that's going on that Republicans have to you know black codes and things like that that are being passed uh, contemporaneous, really, with the Thirteenth Amendment. Right at the same time, the Thirteenth Amendment is uh, being ratified by various states. Uh, you have black codes uh, coming in and in southern states saying, "Well." You know, we'll acknowledge the end of slavery, but we're going to create this caste system in the law, and uh, and in many instances, you know, create slavery uh, in in uh, uh, except for a name, uh, which leads to to blacks uh, and conventions calling on Congress to do something, and Republicans in Congress uh, realizing that something needs to be done, uh, which leads to this first national definition of citizenship in the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Now, in the uh, we're approaching uh, your book from the back end first, but no reason not to do that. Uh, if Lincoln had not been assassinated, uh, what would have been his position on on those black codes, the attempt to undo emancipation? What do, how do you think he would have responded, given given his his unwillingness to simply amend the Constitution freely? That's an excellent question, uh, and the historian George Fredrickson actually questioned how Lincoln would have addressed the uh, the black codes. And, and just to get everyone up to speed who's, who's listening, black codes gave African Americans some rights, but heavily restricted them at the same time. Uh, labor provisions that govern contracts and wages, licensing at uh, very high fees for certain crafts or occupations to try to keep African Americans out. Uh, the rest of uh, black people who without... Uh, quote, good cause, quit their employment. And uh, I think that Lincoln would have supported the Civil Rights Act of 1866 as legislation appropriate to enforcing the 13th Amendment, the uh, second uh, clause of the 13th Amendment. And I think Lincoln would have noted that the act altered but maintained federalism. Uh, and so I... You know, Lincoln signaled in his mind the amendment meant more than just an end to chattel slavery when he called it a king's cure for all the evils. Uh, and I think he would have liked the idea of Congress, you know, as a Whig deferential to Congress. Uh, he would have recognized that Congress should have the power to uh, enforce with appropriate legislation uh, and that the amendment gave that uh, power to Congress through the second clause. So I actually think he would have, he would have supported the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and, uh, and, uh, and thrown his political weight uh, behind it. Uh, not that he needed to. The Republicans had the votes in Congress, but I think he would have very willingly signed it. And it, it would have been very different from uh, Andrew Johnson, who initially vetoed the measure, and uh, Congress had to override his veto, uh, which they actually did on April 9, 1866, one year to the day after Lee's surrender. It's hard to, uh, obviously it's all speculation, but had uh, Lincoln rather than Johnson been president, one imagines a lot of things would have been different. You might not have needed some of the legislation, uh, even conceivably the 14th Amendment, if the executive branch had vigorously enforced the things Congress was trying to do rather than vigorously resisted it, as Johnson did. Let me ask a completely different question, though, as, as we approach a first break. Uh, in, in this book, any non-specialist person picking up a book on Lincoln and the 13th Amendment, their first thought is likely to be, oh, yeah, I saw that movie about the, or, or the Lincoln movie. It's all about the passage of the 13th Amendment. 
and you stayed up front on page three, you're not going to talk about the movie. Uh, Why not? Well, to be honest, I really wanted the story to unfold on its own, and I didn't want it to be a book that engages with the movie or is flagging, you know, errors in the movie or things that the movie got right, things where it took liberties. I want people to read the book on its own, and in reading the book, uh, you you learn where the movie got things right and where the movie got things wrong, where it failed to interrogate certain sources. Uh, I mean, there are a number of scenes that are rooted in a text, you could point to where, uh, where the filmmakers got the, the quote, but unfortunately when you interrogate the text, you realize that it's, uh, it's, it's wrong. Uh, I mean, the, one example is the great scene uh, with the Thaddeus Stevens quote at the end, uh, talking about how the amendment was passed by corruption, aided and abetted by the purest man in America. It's a great scene, it's a great quote. It actually does get right that, uh, that, uh, Thaddeus Stevens' common-law wife was African-American, but he never said that quote. It it actually appears in an 1898 article without any corroboration many decades after his death. But I didn't want the book to become about nitpicking on the movie. I thought that the movie did a masterful job portraying Lincoln's personality as well as uh, figures like Seward and Stanton. Uh, There were a number of instances where it took liberties, uh, but I didn't want the book to be about the movie. I wanted the book to be about Lincoln and the 13th Amendment uh, and the process of constitutional change and amending the Constitution. Uh, Lincoln's own transformation, which you've already signaled, uh, going from being against any changes to the Constitution, believing no one could improve on what the framers uh, did, to actively supporting uh, constitutional amendment. And then what the amendment means, uh, including in the modern day. So I wanted to really keep the story on that. And I know that readers, if they see the movie and read the book, they'll be able to recognize uh, and, and put two and two together. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I think as, as I was reading it, certainly there were moments where I said, I know what scene that relates to. And, yeah. uh, you know, one, one might actually, one can look at the glass, you know, half empty or half full that the uh, script writers and, and movie makers chose to use some historical texts that are less than uh, less than rock solid in terms of their reliability, but on the other hand, they chose to use some historical texts, which uh, a, a lot of they didn't just make stuff up of make stuff up out of whole cloth, which they might easily have done. Um, well, we're going to take a short break here. Come back, talk uh, less about the movie and more about the book, Lincoln and the 13th Amendment by Christian G. Samito, who's our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. We'll be right back. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, back with more Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Christian G. Samito about Lincoln and the 13th Amendment, his book in the concise Lincoln Library. And we talked a little bit about uh, the connections... uh, or the, the ability to verify what you see in the movie Lincoln uh, from reading this book, but it's hardly about that. It's uh, a much deeper book uh, for its the short length. It explores a lot about Lincoln's thinking uh, regarding the amendment. Uh, Chris, let me ask you, I, I said the, the movie is the first question a non-specialist would ask. The first question a specialist might ask you would be, uh, why write this book at all, given that uh, Michael Vorenberg's Final Freedom is also a short monograph on the 13th Amendment? Uh, we've already got such a book. Uh, what does this do differently? Well, Michael Vorenberg's book is an outstanding, uh, a true true model of, uh, of legal history, I think. Uh, and for readers, it's Final Freedom, uh, looking at the drafting and ratification of the Thirteenth Amendment. Uh, the difference between my book and, and uh, Michael's book is that my book places the focus on Lincoln, and I really broaden out. The title is Lincoln: The Thirteenth Amendment, and obviously that's the focus. But I do try to broaden out the examination to look at the bigger picture of Lincoln and constitutional change. And the thing that really surprised me is how. Amending the Constitution broke with Lincoln's long-held belief that should not be altered. Uh, we see him consistently through his uh, pre-presidential career. Uh, we th- see in you know his first inaugural address, and uh, even stronger in, in draft language that doesn't make it into the uh, first inaugural address. Just how against the idea of constitutional amendment uh, he is, and I also try to place the focus on. Lincoln's setting the tone for the 13th Amendment. Uh, in other words, 
people who know about Lincoln and, and who look at emancipation know that Lincoln consistently said that emancipation has to take place on the state level, and he worked very hard to promote emancipation on the state level, and that really, I think, set the stage for the 13th Amendment when his efforts started to bear fruit in places like Maryland. Uh, you have Maryland in 1861, people are rioting as Union soldiers are uh, going through Baltimore, uh, and a few years later, you have Maryland uh, drafting and, and, and ratifying a constitution uh, that emancipates slaves in the state. And I think Lincoln's efforts in that regard helped set the stage for the 13th Amendment. So there are areas of overlap, uh, certainly when I'm looking at the election of 1864, uh, and Michael does a great job of, of looking at that as well. But his book focuses on the broader 13th Amendment. I try to look at Lincoln and constitutional amendment, Lincoln in the process of constitutional change, uh, what Lincoln himself did in that regard uh, to come around to uh, be opposed to amendment, uh, to going to throwing the full weight of his uh, political clout and his office behind the uh, effort uh, to ratify the amendment and, uh, and, and get, it, uh, get it through Congress and ratified by the states. Well, when I mean, you start the book with Lincoln before the Civil War, so absolutely the focus is on Lincoln uh, in the context of amendments. And you show very clearly that he opposed the idea of amending the Constitution. Why was he so opposed, and how did he expect to combat slavery without amending the Constitution? Well, I think that when you understand Lincoln's constitutional thought, what he said about slavery leading up to his presidency and in the early days of his presidency makes sense. What I mean by that is Lincoln consistently says that the Constitution shouldn't be changed. Uh, he says early on, you know, the Lyceum speech, you know, who's, who's going to do better than uh, the founders uh, in so many words? Uh, and I think that what you have happened is him saying, okay, if the Constitution can't be changed, the only way that you could combat slavery is by not allowing it to expand. And so that, that helps make sense of why he consistently said, look, the federal government can't address slavery in the states where it exists. We may not like slavery, but we can't address in the states where it exists. But you don't allow a cancer to spread. And this was a, a, a metaphor that he used often. He would, he would liken slavery to a when or a cancer and say, you know, you may not be able to cut out the cancer or when for fear that the patient bleeds to death, but you don't cure it by allowing it to expand. You don't, you don't want to expand. So his philosophy in the 1850s and going into the presidency is keep slavery from expanding. Don't let it expand into the territories or anything like that. And during the course of the war, he's really not talking about constitutional amendment. He gives this very tepid uh, statement about the Corwin Amendment, uh, saying, look, I'm not for any amendments. Uh, if the, the people want to amend the Constitution, they have that right. There's nothing I could do to stop that, but I don't think the Constitution should be changed. And it's in the course of the war that he comes to realize the constitutional amendment uh, is the way. That's the way to uh, resolve the tension between slavery's existence and the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. Well, he eventually, well, you mentioned the Corwin Amendment. That, that's the sort of the, the first 13th Amendment uh, 
around the time of, of Lincoln's first inaugural, and he, he, he'd say he's not committed for or against it particularly. Uh, it wouldn't have changed things much. But by 1862, uh, in his message to Congress in December 1862, uh, Lincoln proposes a, a whole set of amendments to the Constitution. This seems out of character with what, what you've been saying so far. He does, and I have to say, uh, I, I spend a, a good chunk of the book talking about uh, this this proposal, these proposals of, of three um, three amendments. And I have to say, when you read them, he spends the, the bulk of his uh, annual message to Congress, which you could think of as the State of the Union, what we would now call the State of the Union, uh, back in these days, uh, used to be delivered to Congress as a text. And he spends... A, a huge chunk of that annual message of 1862 uh, with a, a three-part amendment plan, and it really makes very little sense. When you read it, it doesn't even sound like Lincoln. Uh, the, the First Amendment proposal is for this compensated emancipation scheme uh, that would have states, you know, really having until 1900 to emancipate slaves. And it doesn't actually give a date certain. The state didn't have to buy into this. So you could actually have uh, states continuing slavery past 1900. Uh, it talks about colonization, which I really don't think that Lincoln supported. Uh, there are quotes, you know, that Lincoln talked about uh, colonizing African Americans and 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 all that. I think he uh, postured in that point. I think it it was designed to make him look more moderate than he was. He even acknowledges in the 1850s that's completely impractical. Uh, and, and an idea. So it's one of these situations where uh, the historian Mark Neely said, you know, Lincoln temporarily lost his political equilibrium at that moment. And a lot of people really didn't like the proposal. Uh, Salmon Chase even wrote him and said, you know, you didn't ask my opinion, uh, but I feel I should give it anyway. This, this is a bad <laughs> idea to make this proposal. And it, it went nowhere. Uh, and in fact, you know, Congress really didn't take any note of it, didn't really take any action or seriously consider it. Uh, and then in, in 1863, Lincoln is largely quiet on the issue. He doesn't really talk about uh, slavery and amendment and things like that uh, on a national level. He speaks in vague terms in the Gettysburg Address and, and things like that, but he doesn't actually talk about amending the Constitution. And then it's in 1864 that he comes out and asks for it to be included in the uh, Republican platform, and he uh, actively makes it uh, an issue in the 1864 presidential uh, campaign. Well, in in that 62 message to Congress, the thing that struck me in, in your account of it was the timing. Even if this message delivered at the beginning of December meets with a rapturous reception in Congress, the ability of that body to organize itself and uh, come up with uh, bills and pass them before January 1st is extremely slender. And the possibility of them passing a constitutional amendment and having it ratified by January 1st is zero. There's there's no no physical possibility. And January 1st is the day that he's promised to sign the final Emancipation Proclamation. So either, so what happens if Congress does say, hey, this is great stuff, where we pass it, we send it out to the states, 
would Lincoln then not have signed the proclamation because this was in process? Uh, that seems. It, it, it. You just wonder. Did he even think this through? How? What would he have done? It's a. It's a. It's a very quest, a good question as to uh, how how well he did think this through, and it's 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 why Salmon Chase uh, said you shouldn't have done this. Uh, it, yeah. it, it really didn't make a lot of sense, and he sends a signal: "Look, we're not we're not going to stop the uh, Emancipation Proclamation." Uh, but you're you're exactly right. He takes the position that the Confederate states never left the Union, so they have mm-hmm. to be a part of the ratification process. Uh, he's giving a very very short amount of time for Congress to pass these measures, send them to the states, get them ratified. Uh, I, it, it really is a perplexing moment. Uh, it's significant in the sense that Lincoln is now thinking about constitutional amendment, something that he's uh, so against for so much of his career, and it shows by late 1862 he's recognizing constitutional amendment as uh, as the solution here. But it's a very, very inept, uh, uncharacteristic, uh, uncharacteristically so inept uh, way of going about the uh, the issue. And you know he 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 does get uh, excoriated uh, by a number of people who who say you know Jesus is is he you know Count Gorowski says that it's you know this uneasy forced uh, uh, annual message Frederick Douglass actually you know questions you know the president is incompetent to write his own official uh, papers uh, Republican congressmen are very very upset. Uh, Henry Dawes of Massachusetts says, you know, the, the, the chief magistrate is saying, I've got a plan which is going to work into the next century. Uh, so a lot of people recognize that this was uh, impractical and, uh, and, and not apt to work. But it does tell us that by 1862, Lincoln, Lincoln had come around to, to see constitutional amendment as an answer to the, uh, to the, the problem. Uh, he just wasn't there yet in terms of what kind of amendment uh, would be viable and uh, what would work. And, and I think and he was somewhat serious. I think he was serious about the amendment because he spent so much of his annual message. If it was, you know, posturing or if it was something to try to coerce, you know, some of the states to, some of the Confederate states to lay down their arms, uh, I don't think he would have spent such a large percentage of his annual message uh, talking about this. I mean, he really comes up with all kinds of different arguments as to anticipate criticisms of the uh, compensated emancipation scheme they lays out in the First Amendment uh, proposal. So uh, I, the, 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 the logic is often faulty, but I think he was very serious uh, when you look at how much uh, it's around you know, 40% of his annual message is devoted to this amendment uh, package that he's proposing. So I don't think that's meant as a decoy or an incentive. I think he's, he's quite serious about it. But then, you know, when he comes around to the conclusion and talks about this fiery trial through which we pass and uh, lays out some of the great Lincolnian phrases of all time, uh, he's, he's talking about solving this problem and, and he's about to sign the uh, uh, proclamation. So he he has some of that political equilibrium that Mark Neely says he, he has lost momentarily when he finishes that document, but uh, certainly the the proposals are odd. Now, by the following year, by the spring of the year after, of 1864, you, you point out that Lincoln has now accepted uh, where the party has gone. They are talking in Congress about 
uh, an amendment, an anti-slavery or an abolition amendment, and this becomes part of the campaign of 1864. Uh, there's uh, discussion, uh, I think it was Jonathan White was on the show recently talking about his research into Union soldiers in the 1864 election, and he sent all these letters from uh, soldiers who say, yeah, we're going to vote for Lincoln because we don't want to give up the war. We hate those anti-war Democrats. Uh, but they don't have any love for Lincoln or for emancipation. Uh, so making the 13th Amendment a, a political issue in the election seems like a risky thing to do. It is risky, and in fact, you know, James Ashley, who uh, is the House manager for the amendment, um, and by the way, a quibble of mine with the movie is that they characterize him as a bit timid. Uh, I don't think he was, he was timid in real life, the way he's portrayed in the movie, uh, but he makes it an issue, and he almost loses uh, his, his re-election campaign. Uh, but, you know, it's very difficult to ascertain what to what extent the amendment played into the election. And what I mean by that is, it wasn't a one-issue election. Uh, certainly the cause of the union was very, very important in the election. Uh, and so you get people voting for Lincoln, not necessarily because they're supporting uh, the, the abolition amendment, but because they're supporting the cause of the union. But having said that, I think he did put it squarely at issue in the election. People know what's going to happen. People know that if the Democrats win, that this kind of proposal is, is dead. And very importantly, by putting it into the 1864 election as, as such a prominent issue in the platform, it means that when Lincoln is reelected, he's able to say, this is the mandate of the people. Uh, the people have spoken. Uh, and this is the mandate that they've issued, that we need a constitutional amendment to abolish slavery. And in fact, there are a number of members of Congress who say that, including some Democrats who say, okay, you know, the, the election is clear. Uh, the people have spoken on, this, on the, the abolition amendment. And so, you know, Frederick Douglass says that, and other, other people identify and say, and they craft this re-election victory as a mandate in favor of uh, the what we know of as the Thirteenth Amendment. So, it, when the Republicans then win Congress in the eighteen sixty four election, the new newly elected members won't take their seats for a number of months under the old system. Uh, so, the the current sitting Congress is the one that actually votes on this in January of eighteen sixty five. It looks like it's time for us to take a break, but when I come back, the question will be, why why vote then? Why not wait for all the Republicans to take their seats, and then, then it's a slam dunk? So we'll leave that question on the table. We're talking tonight with Christian G. Semito, author of Lincoln and the 13th Amendment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app. 
if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Christian G. Sumito, author of Lincoln and the 13th Amendment. It's an entry in the Southern Illinois University Press's Concise Lincoln Library, a brief book that focuses on one topic in the life of Abraham Lincoln. There are many others in the series. And this one, as we've been discussing, shows how Lincoln's own thinking about the process of constitutional amendment evolved throughout his political career to the point that by 1864 he was ready to go against his earlier reluctance to see the Constitution amended and try to get uh, such an amendment through that would permanently end slavery. And the question we left with was why, why such a rush at the end of 1864, beginning of 1865, when the November 1764 election established that the next Congress would be dominated by the Republican Party then would have no trouble passing such an amendment. Uh, so, Chris, why did Lincoln push to get this amendment passed by the 38th Congress instead of waiting for the 39th? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, and, in fact, everyone knew that Lincoln could simply call a special session of the new Congress uh, to pass the amendment after the 38th Congress adjourned on March 3rd, uh, 1865. The New York Times uh, mentioned the possibility uh, Republican Representative Josiah Grinnell made the observation on the House floor. Uh, and by the way, that possibility of Lincoln calling a special session uh, to pass the amendment resolution gives rise to a alternate line of events uh, if the 38th Congress declined to pass the amendment because Reconstruction would have developed very differently. If Lincoln convenes a special session, Congress likely would have been in session uh, when he's assassinated. Uh, which would have preempted the period of presidential reconstruction under Johnson uh, from April to December 1865. Uh, but, but getting back to your question, why Lincoln and his allies put so much effort into 
again, the 38th Congress to pass the amendment. Uh, I think it's a number of reasons. Uh, if you saw the amendment as undermining hope for the rebellion, uh, it would show democratic support, uh, that ending slavery went beyond just a party issue, just beyond uh, Republican support. Uh, I think ratification by some of the slaveholding states that remained in the Union uh, would send a message to the Confederates that the border states wouldn't join them. Uh, Maryland and Missouri, you know, in light of events there, uh, it seemed very likely that they would uh, ratify. But I think the most important issue, and the reason that Lincoln was so, so uh, devoted to getting the uh, amendment passed as soon as possible, was that the sooner Congress sent the amendment to the states, the sooner the issue was out of Lincoln's hands in regards to peace talks. He could truthfully say to any Confederate peace envoys that the matter now rested with the American people pursuant to the ratification process, uh, that it wasn't up to him, that it was with the people. And I think this is something that the movie uh, probably came closer uh, to the truth on the Hampton Roads Conference than Alexander Stevens' own account. Alexander Stevens uh, has an account of the Hampton Roads Conference that as Lincoln very, very implausibly, talking about Confederate states ratifying the amendment prospectively to take place in five years, uh, something I really uh, explained in the book. I, I can't see any way that Lincoln said any of that. In the movie, Lincoln tells Stevens the amendment is going to get ratified, slavery is over, and I think that's exactly what Lincoln would have said. Uh, and I think that he was pushing the amendment because he wanted it off the table. It's not up to me. It's a constitutional amendment that is up to the American people, and the Confederate states are going to be a part of that ratification process. Uh, Lincoln always held that they needed to be part of the ratification process, first to be intellectually consistent. If he's saying that the Confederate states never left the Union, uh, then it would make sense that they have to be part of the ratification process. But it's also his you know, part of his lenient reconstruction policy of getting them involved in the political process, hoping they'll ease the sting of uh, emancipation for Southern slaveholders uh, by having them participate in this uh, amendment ratification process. So that's why he's, the writing is on the wall that the next Congress can very easily pass this amendment resolution. That's why he puts such a premium on getting it passed uh, before a Congress adjourns. Well, the the issue of the, doing it in regard to peace talks with the Confederacy is uh, is obviously a critical element in in the movie as well as in reality. That uh, if there's a sense that peace talks are about to happen, there are some Democrats in Congress who then will not vote for the amendment because they think that might cause a problem or be an additional barrier to the Confederacy uh, finding a way to to come to a truce and that the, the movie turns on that issue so I, I know listeners would want me to ask you about that uh, uh, the critical moment in the movie uh, Lincoln writes a, uh, a, a fib uh, well it, it's a lie by omission of, about whether or not peace talks are going on the specific question is are there peace conference uh, peace commissioners coming to DC and Lincoln truthfully says, no, I don't know of any. Uh, but he knows very well they're, they're at Hampton Roads. Uh, he knows where they are and what they're doing. Uh, right. But, so does the movie get that right, that Lincoln finessed uh, the truth to, to make this happen? 
it gets the spirit of it uh, correct. It's not uh, Bilbo uh, uh, played by James Spader who uh, who runs to Lincoln and, and gets the letter. What happens is uh, Samuel Cox, Sunset Cox, who actually supports the amendment, who actually gives a speech when some people, uh, some the, the Democratic opposition is saying, you know, the amendment power doesn't address things as big as slavery. And Sunset Cox gives a speech in favor of amendment and says, no, the amendment Article 5 power is very broad. The, the, the amendment could address whatever the people wanted to address. Uh, so he, he actually supports the amendment. Uh, and he also says, you know, we have to get rid of this issue that's killing the Democratic Party. Uh, so Democrat Sunset Cox is in favor of the amendment. What happens is he hears rumors uh, that there's a, a peace delegation. Correct rumors. There's a peace delegation at Hampton Roads. And he's afraid that that's going to derail peace talks, that amendment passage uh, will throw off those peace talks. And remember, at this point, no one realizes how close we are to Appomattox and the complete collapse of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's clear where the war is going, but we, we don't know how much longer resistance will, will hold on and how many more casualties there will be. So Cox uh, says, you know, look, if there's a, a peace commission, if there's a negotiation about to happen, uh, we, we can't have this vote. From the House floor, Ashley uh, sends Lincoln a note via uh, Lincoln's secretary, Nikolai. Uh, the report is in circulation in the House that peace commissioners are on their way or are in the city and is being used against us. If it is true, I fear we shall lose the bill. Please authorize me to contradict it if not true. And Lincoln gets the note on the back of it. He's in a conference with uh, Carl Schertz, and he quickly writes, so far as I know, there are no peace commissioners in the city or likely to be in it. And Lincoln knows that it's, you know, a, a, a lie by omission. He actually jokes around later on uh, saying uh, that he, 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 he knew where they were, uh, but he was very honest in terms of writing. They weren't in the city. Uh, and he has a conversation with Elizabeth uh, Peabody, uh, who's uh, the, the sister to the wives of Nathaniel Hawthorne and Horace Mann, and she writes back uh, a recounting meeting with Lincoln twice in February 1865. And uh, in one of the meetings, him telling her, uh, oh, there's a little story with this litter. And he, he discloses to her this whole situation. They get this, this note asking about the peace commissioners, and he says that they're not in the city. Uh, and he soothes the, the, the issue on that. Cox, by the way, doesn't believe Lincoln and, and assumes that he's either uh, willfully misrepresenting the truth or ignorant as to the location of peace commissioners, and that's why he ends up voting against the amendment. He doesn't, he doesn't believe uh, the, uh, the letter when it comes back from Lincoln. So uh, the fact that Lincoln actually, that Honest Abe, told a lie to get this happen sort of backs up the apocryphal uh, uh, quote uh, we started with about this this being passed, uh, you know, the Thaddeus Stevens apocryphal quote, uh, aided and abetted by you know, corruption and the, the purest uh, person in America doing this. The, uh, the, the thing I found really interesting in your account of how the vote passed was that Democrats went along with it not by being uh, bribed or, or corrupted but realizing the writing was on the wall politically 
and the game was not to get Democrats to vote for it, but to get not not to get Democratic Congress members to actually cast their votes, but to get their leaders, the the the, the string pullers in Albany and elsewhere, to signal to the rank and file, you don't have to vote for this to be a good Democrat. We don't care right. what you do. And it, it's very subtle, but that was all that Lincoln needed was for the opposition to tell its foot soldiers, it, you won't be punished if you vote in favor of this. And right. thus they are free to do so, and that's all that, that's what happens. And it, in it's fact, a great political story. Some, I'm sorry. It's a great political story. It's much more subtle. It really is. I found presents. there to be a lot of drama between, uh, in this moment of, of passing the, uh, getting the votes necessary to uh, pass the amendment resolution in the House, as well as getting the abstentions necessary. Uh, but I will say, I think that some Democrats uh, vote in favor of it, realizing that the writing is on the wall, uh, and realizing that this is an issue that is, hurting the Democratic Party. So if the Democratic Party is ever going to go forward and revive itself, that has to abandon uh, the association with slavery. Uh, I think that there are other Democrats that realize and, and openly acknowledge the amendment protects uh, federalism. And what I mean by that is you look at some of the radical Republican plans uh, and you know, Sumner's discussion of state suicide and things like that, uh, Amending the Constitution to eliminate slavery, something that they acknowledge is dead anyway, preserves federalism and it, and it preserves the Constitution from some of these more radical plans. It, Lincoln actually openly says when he uh, pocket vetoes the Wade Davis bill, uh, this is exactly why I'm for the amendment, uh, so that we could avoid this whole uh, issue and in, in discussion about the states and whether they were in the Union or left the Union or, or what that all means. So I think that some Democrats actually come around to support the uh, amendment for moral reasons. I think some come around to realize that the Democratic Party, they do it for partisan realize, the Democrat reasons, the Democratic Party needs to abandon slavery to revive itself. And I think some of them realize, you know, give up what's dead anyway so that we could preserve uh, federalism. Because if we don't, if we have Congress talking about state suicide and things like that, uh, federalism is in serious jeopardy. So Lincoln actually uses the constitutional amendment, I think, in part to shield federalism. To, to keep the, the, the role of the states in a federal system so it's not just an absolute uh, central government. Uh, now, we just have just a minute to uh, for this. I'll, I'll just throw it out there. The 13th Amendment for many years was considered a historical phenomenon as opposed to a legal one. It's not one that was... Uh, I don't remember studying it in law school at all, but we spent many, you know, entire uh, class on the 14th Amendment, entire course uh, on the 14th Amendment. The 13th Amendment was just, uh, was, was cut and dry, and slavery, that's it. But you point out that it's, it's coming back, that, that legal scholars are finding use for it today. Uh, can you give us a 30-second wrap-up on that? Sure. Uh, law commentators now talk about how the amendment might apply across a broad range of issues, uh, various forms of race-based discrimination to labor conditions, uh, from sexual harassment to discrimination against homosexuals. Uh, the 13th Amendment undoubtedly applies to sex trafficking. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's, that's pretty clear. Uh, on the other hand, there is 
the standard of judicial review well known to the 13th Amendment's framers. Legislation must be within its scope. I think the Supreme Court has indicated uh, that it will continue patrolling the boundaries of congressional authority. Uh, so that would give broad deference to congressional legislation passed pursuant to the 13th Amendment, but would strike down laws applying it to issues unrelated to slavery uh, or involuntary servitude. So I think that the 13th Amendment is still alive. It does still apply uh, to an issue. In fact, since 2010, the White House has proclaimed January National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month, but it ends it on National Freedom Day on February 1st. And National Freedom Day is designated February 1st because that's when Lincoln signed the resolution sending the 13th Amendment to the states for ratification. Uh, he didn't have to do so constitutionally, uh, but he did to show his support and have an abundance of caution. So I think there's, there's the White House you know, indicating its belief then tying the 13th Amendment onto national slavery and human trafficking prevention uh, and saying it's, it's uh, clearly applicable to that issue. And, uh, I think it is. So the, the 13th Amendment is, is a, a living legacy of Abraham Lincoln, not just a historical monument. Uh, Chris, it's a, a lot of fascinating information and argument in this short book. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, I know our listeners will as well. And thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.